This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by six amazing people. Allison Cook, Super Inframan, Bart Ooms, Billuminati, 36 Dingo, and Michael Fritzke. If you want to become a patron, www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And now our show. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? I have with me Mr. A.P. Strange. Hello, hello. And Christopher Ernst. Hey, everybody. And uh, before we get into the subject of tonight's show, uh, earlier today, like about two hours ago, um, Super Inframan was here. Unfortunately, he couldn't stay for this, but um, we went out and checked out a very creepy graveyard outside of Ithaca, and we did a video on it, and uh, that, that will be up later. But the one thing that happened that uh, is not on video, of course, I had turned the camera off and started just taking some pictures, and uh, there was a loud thunk right next to me, as if mm -hmm. someone threw a stone. And I just kind of stopped and I looked and I'm like, I don't see anything that could have made that loud of a thunk. Uh, and I didn't realize that Natalie had also heard it uh, standing oh, yeah. quite a distance away. And she thought it was something I did. Yeah. But of course, that thunk is not on, on video. There's yeah. no audio of it because, you know, we had just filmed for 30 minutes. And uh, yeah, that's how that stuff works. Of course. So that'll be up if it's not already. So it's, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, Definitely an interesting place. We're going to have to go back there. Maybe when you come out, Chris. Yeah, this was a new one, too, that you were telling me yeah. about. Uh, that uh, is, like, have you mentioned it before? Like, I know a lot of the stuff, the places you've taken me to, you've mentioned on the show, but this is a new place. I, meant, I mentioned right? it briefly. People, yeah. people have told me repeatedly that it's very haunted. The yeah. whole area is weird. That's um, cool. And when I had a doctor's appointment recently, the nurse found out I did a paranormal show and was telling me she used to live up there, and it was a really weird place. Oh, nice. And I'm like, yes, I need to get back up there, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, Saxon being here was a good, good opportunity to, uh, to go up and check it out. Cool. Uh, I love it. The yeah. First, no, the totally first, check that out. the first time I went up, um, was r right at the beginning of the pandemic. So I, it's when stores were still closing at like 6 PM yeah. and I come out of the store and I'm like, maybe I should try and find this place. So I did. And I got there just at dusk cause you can drive right by it like numerous times and not know it's there. Um, and it was creepy as all hell. And yeah. so I wanted to go back there with someone and see if I got the same impression. And it's, yeah. it's, it's not necessarily a bad vibe. It's just, it's weird. Like there's no sound. Yeah. There's no birds. There's no insects. There's no nothing. And you're in the That's middle of weird. a woods. <laughs> so you'll see on the video. But yeah, the thunk was just kind of like, what? You know, like why? Why couldn't that have happened while the camera was still going? Yeah. Ain't that the way it always goes? Yeah. Because then I could listen back and be like, okay, what? Did that really sound like a rock? You know, could that have been something else? But it was loud, whatever it was. All right. So tonight we're going to be talking about theosophy because I've never done a show on theosophy. And both of you have know a little bit about theosophy. 
Yeah. Yep. And you you just read, didn't, what was the book that you just recently read, AP? Oh, I was reading The Secret Doctrine. You were reading The Secret Doctrine itself. Okay, I, did, I forgot it was Isis Unveil, Unveiled or The Secret Doctrine. Yeah. Cool. So, so many, many years ago, I borrowed those from the library and I could not get through either one. Yeah. Like they were just, like they did not catch me at all. I read the first few chapters and of course they're enormous books. Yeah. And I was just like, I'm not interested in this. It's a common experience, I think. Yeah, they're not exactly the 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 most fun reading. Neither are the Mahatma letters, uh, the ones that are you know ostensibly these letters between some of the Mahatmas uh, that they speak about in Theosophy. Yeah, it's um, I've I've read those. The the one that you were just speaking about, uh, AP. I have not read. Um, what is it? The uh, what's it called? theosophy questions about theosophy or something like yeah, that uh, the key to theosophy the key to theosophy yeah yeah Which but is actually, the other ones. that would be ideal for a beginner i think yeah yeah um, yeah the other stuff is is the other stuff that may, is really i i wouldn't know where to start to you know whenever anybody asks about this i tell them to read gary luckman's book rather than actually uh, read the source material first all right well where, where, where does theosophy come from well it, it comes from madame blavatsky okay uh, so <laughs> uh and i mean this is kind of the impetus for this in a lot of ways to me was just that uh for the reason i was looking into it is because uh theosophy is such a wide and broad subject with a lot of dense esotericism it's kind of done that way on purpose but yeah. we're also a very long tradition because we're talking over 100 years um almost 150 at this point you know um that that a lot gets conflated and rolled together as one thing but when you're talking about the origins of it it begins with madame blavatsky and uh henry Steele alcott in america so it's an american yep. thing too you know yep um, so, and that, that goes back to the founding of the society in 1875. Right. And then from there, like a lot of, you know, new religious movements and religious in general, there are, I would say like, you know, two or three waves after that, where you get these people who essentially take over the leadership and, you know, oftentimes reinterpret dogma and you know add things take things away so on and so forth and so theosophy in many ways for many people it is you know more something that has to do with like the i am movement or you know guy ballard or uh um you know stuff that was happening more in like the you know first part of the night of the uh 20th century rather than in the latter part of the 1800s. I don't know if you'd agree on that AP, but that's kind of how I see yeah, it. Yeah, I would. And I, I think it really speaks to how influential Blavatsky and theosophical concepts actually are. Yeah. So, I mean, there are some, it's fitting that we're recording this on Mother's Day because there are some that would refer to her as the mother of the modern occult. Right. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, I think that's a pretty accurate statement too. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and, um, uh, but I mean, the reach of theosophy in the popular mindset is touch on, uh, popular culture ufology with the contactees. There were a lot, there was a lot of contactee stuff that's either adjacent to or directly derived from theosophy and, um, and in conspiracy theory, theosophy looms large. <laughs> well, did, didn't yeah. the Nazis take parts of uh, theosophy as well with the root yeah. races and stuff like that? Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where it gets all tied up in, um, conspiracy thinking. Ah, okay. Yep. Um, but a lot of that too, a lot of that idea of right root races and race in general 
you know, had a lot to do with, you know, and this is not an excuse for it, but there was a lot of like anthropological and colonial sort of discovery going on at the time that Blavatsky was, you know, writing this stuff that was very, very culturally influential. Um, and it's the same thing of like, I don't know, trying to think of something that's analogous. It's like, I don't know. And all the new age stuff now, people are talking about quantum, you know, in the same way that I think at in the mid 1800s with a lot of the colonialism that was going on, there was this sort of like, uh, you know, a colonialist anthropology that uh, was trying to use the scientific method or science to create some sort of, you know, um, uh, post-Darwinian idea of, uh, yeah, classification of evolution and, you know, human beings and stuff like that. Um, I guess in a loose way. And so I, I feel like there's a lot of that influence too, in her adopting this idea of, of the root race, you know, and as problematic as it is, I don't know if she was, it was something that came out of her mind, uh, you know, uh, a whole cloth as much as it was influenced by things that were going on culturally. Now, did she just, she claimed to sort of channel this stuff, didn't she? Was that that part of it? Well, yeah, well, not exactly. This, that's where you get into the masters and the Mahatmas. Yeah. Okay. Uh, But before we move on entirely from the root race, uh, concept, there's, there's, there's layers to that. Um, so everything, everything Blavatsky writes about has like a Russian doll kind of aspect to it where (laughs) Uh take it apart. There's an, there's a story with a, within a story within a story. Um, cause there is the esoteric end of what she meant by race in that sense. Cause she's borrowing from, uh, from, you know, kind of old Hinduist Hindu ideas and ideas out of Eastern religion. Yeah. But not verbatim. She's not, no, exactly. She's not representing it and nor does she claim to, she's not exactly claiming to represent the Eastern beliefs, um, the way that they're practiced, uh, all the time. But, um, the root race idea comes from the idea that we're talking about massive time scales here. Um, there's, there's different ages or epochs as, uh, Rudolf Steiner would later call them of um the development of what became humanity yeah so as far as she was concerned we're in the fifth root race um of which there's seven sub races and we're in the fifth one of those yeah Uh, i feel i feel like all that taxonomy is so indicative of the time you know what i mean well what she's referring to by race is like the material physical being yes so she's saying that in the first root race uh there was no material form at all it's like you're just like an energy being right and then it moves on from there the second root race the third was supposed to be the ancient lemurians yeah the fourth was the atlanteans yeah and the current root race and this is where it gets uh problematic in the extreme from a modern lens is that it was the aryans yeah the fifth root race which it represents all of people we are now um and when when she talks about race as we would think of the term now i mean um you know it's debatable there 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 are different ways of looking at it but she the main thrust of and the uh the stated goals of the theosophical society was a universal brotherhood of all races creeds religions and um there's a unifying principle there. Yeah. So, not to say there isn't problematic stuff. Oh no, she's she said some really crappy stuff, you know, some terrible stuff about like physical races, about African uh uh 
Aborigines in Australia um, and stuff like that. She said some pretty bad stuff, you know, referring to them as like animals or half animals and things like that. And I think, uh, again, I think a lot of this stuff is, you know, in many ways, how that sort of colonialist anthropology was approaching things at at that time. Mm, right. Okay. Yeah. So it's all it's all very complicated. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah. I mean that, that like you said, there is a lot of that um, in the popular mindset in science. Um, I mean, we're talking about an era where phrenology was being explored right? and um, uh, ideas of diffusionism that there was one society that spread out uh, and and you know there's there are some that are more pure than others that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, a lot of ideas that were supportive of a colonial mindset. Uh, yeah, that yeah. There was the, the European uh, was the ideal of society and it, it was, you know, the divine right that they take ownership of all other places on earth. And at the same time, she was very anti-oppression, too. That was a big thing that she was fighting against. And the later, you know, sort of involvement of theosophy in the uh, Indian independence movement, you know, um, was certainly a positive thing. So there's a lot of like. You know, uh, there's a lot of contradiction and, you know, uh, a sort of cognitive dissonance that's going on here. Or it's somebody that's, you know, um, I, it, uh, that is, I guess, changing their mind or having evolving uh, thoughts and opinions. But, yeah. Well, some this, of it was, was inter inter uh, political stuff within the society because. Right. So you're talking about a, a woman from Russia or a modern yeah. Ukraine, but um, it, that's where she was born. But she was a Russian woman. Yeah. doing what she wanted which i mean although she came from uh nobility and had that kind of privilege i mean she was a woman doing whatever she wanted in yeah. the 1850s 60s yeah. and it was it was in the 50s that she you know just to sort of fill in for people that aren't you know familiar it was in the 50s that she you know through this privilege ostensibly traveled around and was in different parts of asia and europe and the you know um and during that time she said that she was you know uh uh that she met these spiritual um these adepts and these weren't you know described as gods when in the way that she describes them first meeting them they were these sort of masters of ancient you know she calls them masters of ancient wisdom uh but they were sort of these spiritual adepts and that was where she got she ended up going to Tibet uh, for her quote unquote training, whether yeah. or not this actually happened. But that was, you know, the story that she told. And let, let's be clear. We're talking about the 1850s. 1850s. Yes, yes. correct. Yeah. Uh, and she made her way to America, too. Yep. Uh, and went, went and went straight across the country to San Francisco before departing and heading back to Asia, I think. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it's all pretty crazy to think that she was doing that at that time. And a lot of this time she was, uh, you know, she came from with wealth, but she could do without as well. You know, she could rough it. Yeah. I think at one point in her travels, she even fought in a battle somewhere. She just joined up with a battle that was going on. I think I, yes. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she had injuries from it for the rest of her life. She would yeah. show people like bullet wounds that she got, or maybe just sword scars. I'm not sure. But, um, but yeah, the point I was getting to is, so when she founded the Theosophical Society in 1875 with 
Henry Alcott. This was in the United States and pretty quickly left to go to India. Um, like the the British people that were all about theosophy, the, this is where you had the first kind of major uh, cognitive dissonance within the leadership. Because I believe that the, the British people that had a vested interest in colonizing, keeping the colonies of, of colonized India a thing um, we're interpreting it very differently than Blavatsky would yeah and certainly the way Alcott would being an American so um, uh, I mean Blavatsky being a Russian uh, the the she was actually being shadowed and followed around because a lot of the British people thought she was a spy for Russia yeah. and trying to poison the minds of the Indians against the British mm. so that the R- Russians could actually colonize India so <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So so everything she wrote was information she picked up from these masters when she was out in Tibet stuff. Well, that and her own studies. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, like she was she was traveling, like doing all this traveling sort of and she was part of the spiritualist movement, you know, um uh I'm trying to think. Uh cuz she she traveled all around. She was in like Constantinople, she was in Egypt. Um there was uh there was this guy um I forget what's uh I'm trying to remember what his name was. Uh but there was like a Coptic magician she supposedly met. Um uh anyway, uh the mesmerists and stuff like that. Uh but yeah, it was in I think it was in England that she met uh, who somebody that she described as uh, uh, Indian, um, and that was the person uh, who had appeared had appeared to her in her childhood visions. This was Moira, Master right. Moira. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and, and I mean, obviously, a lot of people just throw out the word uh, fraud when they talk about Blavatsky. Yeah, and is that just because she was doing some some trickstery things here and there, or? Well, the people think that the. Uh, adepts because the stories of the adepts and uh, who she referred to as the masters and later became known as the Mahatmas and uh, various different interpretations beyond her death. They became uh, what's known as ascended masters. Yeah. And then Guy Ballard, you know, and there was all this stuff that happened after that, that really took them into a like, you know, contacty space. And there's, you know, even more uh, linkage of the masters to like, you know, established figures in history and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean the, the masters, the Mahatmas, whatever you want to call them, that, that's a big part of the reason people would consider Blavatsky a fraud. Okay. I thought it was some of the seance stuff as well. They didn't, they didn't believe any of that. No, I mean, people were more primed to believe in, in seances than they were. Okay. All right. <laughs> to go adepts from. The so, story. so here's the thing. And you know, uh, I mean, whether or not it's true, what she's talking about is based upon, um, some very real stuff that exists. Like if people are familiar with Sufism, um, and I know that you're friends with, uh, professor wham, maybe she's, this is something that, you know, she can talk about. I'm sure she knows better than, than I, you know, my, my, uh, exposure to Sufism is through this, uh, a very sort of strange, um, you know, uh, offshoot of that, which is the, the Meher Baba movement. But within Sufi, uh, mystic tradition, there are these, I, you know, essentially they're saints is what they are, uh, called Abdals. And, you know, there are ranks of these sort of 40 saints uh, in a larger group of 356 saints. And they all, you know, essentially are filling these roles exactly the way people are attributing to uh, ascended masters or, you know, Mahatmas 
Um, and in the Indian tradition too, in the, you know, uh, Advaitic tradition, which is an offshoot of Hinduism, you know, the idea of the avatar and of the, uh, you know, uh, the, the saint too, the holy man, the Sadguru, uh, is very much, you know, like, I mean, I would be absolutely blown away if what Blavatsky was, uh, you know, talking about wasn't in some way influenced by, this and this is a similar thing too that you know you hear uh, uh, Gurdjieff talk about. He talks about these you know Sufis sort of adepts that he met that are uh, you know introduced him to this you know sort of secret knowledge. Uh, this isn't something which kind of came whole cloth out of nowhere. It was just that nobody really knew about it, and it's not necessarily secret. Like it continued into you know today in India, there is still a tradition of this going on. Um, you know, and uh, they're referred to as perfect masters. Um, and there's a whole sort of series of, uh, you know, uh, like the spiritual hierarchy that is um, uh, where there are certain numbers of these masters and they have certain duties and stuff like that. Uh, so the belief thing aside, this is not something that, you know, is a weird, fraudulent uh, imagination based story that somebody came up with this is coming from you know cultures that are thousands of years old that already have the the same uh narratives these same mythologies yeah yeah and uh the stories about them are really fun yeah i think there's there's a website um that and then i can't remember what it is now but uh the, they have copies of like alcott's recollections and stuff of um actually encountering them and some of those stories read like encounters with men in black or uh space brothers totally <laughs> it's, it's yeah same kind of stuff yeah and, uh, gary lockman makes a point of saying that in his book and he, he's absolutely right um there's a story about like the masters showing up to visit uh alcott and making it rain in his room right mm, and, yeah and and even though the rain's falling and making everything wet the masters themselves don't get wet yeah and he r runs out of the room and goes downstairs to where blavatsky was sitting in the parlor and she's sitting there smoking cigars with the masters that were yeah. just in his room a minute ago <laughs> yeah yeah i mean yeah. You, you you'll find stories like this all over india you know of these masters uh, and usually they live, you know, the, the difference though, is that they don't live in secret. They just live as ascetics, you know, meaning that most of them live just sort of very humble lives, but the, the, you know, it's there, you know, you can find there are people, uh, from the like early part of the century that, you know, were ostensibly these folks like, uh, Narayan Maharaj and, uh, Tajuddin Baba, uh, and these are both Muslim and Hindu, uh, and you can find all of these, you know, weird stories about similar things happening, uh, with people, these miraculous things happening, but they're just thought of as saints is what they're essentially thought of within, you know, uh, the culture in India. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's, so like when I hear like, you know, my exposure to theosophy and the, the things that, you know, I read about it is because it was, you know, it was something that happened, uh, um, Probably about, I don't know, I mean, the, the Meher Baba stuff that I was raised with, that started in like, the, you know, 1915, 1920. Um, so it's, you know, 40, 50 years uh, earlier than that. But it's a very similar sort of track. And there was a lot of um, uh, overlap between some of the people that were in working and doing theosophy 
work in India in the early part of the 20th century and some of the uh, Meher Baba folks. But I only bring this up because it's, you know, from a very recent sort of, uh, you know, mystical teacher being Meher Baba, he was speaking about essentially the same thing, but tracing it to these very long, you know, uh, uh, this these legacy um, ideas that come from uh, Zoroastrianism and Sufism and Hinduism. But he was essentially saying the same thing that Blavatsky was in that, you know, there is, you know, the, the fundamentals that are expounded in the secret doctrine being like there is uh, this eternal immutable reality uh, and that spirit and matter are both aspects of that. And there's, you know, these cycles of evolution uh, that, you know, grand cycles that we go through cyclical change. You're talking about yugas in that way. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, all like 340 billion years or something. And that all souls are identical under this sort of oversoul of our paraatma. You know, that is, that's completely Adivedanta. That's, you know, thousands of years old. That's the Atma and the paraatma, the idea of the oversoul. Um, and so all of these teachings of Blavatsky are, you know, they're not new. Uh, it's just nobody outside of India or the Middle East had heard of them at that point. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, she, that's, that's the crux of it is it's a difference between like Eastern, uh, esotericism and Western and yep. it's, and it's trying to bring the East into the West yep. and, and kind of reconcile the two, um, in a way. But uh, speaking of like fraud, that's one of the other things, the secret yeah. doctrine itself is by all accounts seems to be a literary invention of Madame Blavatsky's. Exactly. Which is the stanzas of Gian, which is, that's the text that the masters gave to her and helped her to decipher from its original language, which I think she said was Zenzar is like a pre-science. Yeah. And this is all very much not Vedantic. This is all Buddhist. Like now she switched into this sort of cribbing from Tibetan Buddhist Buddhism. Right. Yeah. But, but the stanzas of Gian were her own literary invention. Yes. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people, that's another reason people would claim fraud. Yeah. Um, now, did she admit that or did that just not? No, have she any... never admitted that. No. Yeah. Okay. But it's, you know, I mean, like I think you said very blatantly in us talking about this pre-notes and uh, who you were quote, I forget if you were quoting somebody, but that, you know, she's essentially trying to create a, uh, you know, uh, a new mythology and she, in, in, in her like amalgamation and this sort of synthesis of all these ideas that she came across and whether or not, you know, I personally, at least in my experiences, I do think that there are, it's not secret, but I do think that there are within particular yogic and tantric practices, there is this sort of like, you know, there is this linkage to hermeticism and this sort of way of looking at the world in a a mystical sense that does go back pretty far and that you see it, you know, um, uh, kind of like pop up in different ways, uh, in, in these different sort of, uh, occult or esoteric spaces throughout history. Um, at least in my experience, it seems that way. So I, 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 but I think that, you know, Blavatsky in her sort of taking of all of these different things, I feel like her, she was almost, (laughs) you know, perhaps, and again, I could be wrong. She was trying to like re-enchant or, uh, um, I don't know, I guess, like you said, AP reconcile maybe. Uh, but I, I, I don't know if her 
in the way that somebody thinks about something being fraudulent, uh, you know, in order to make money. I I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but there's something about it that seems like there was a certain level of inspiration uh, that caused her to feel like she, you know, was doing something, uh, you know, positive. Mm. Um, yeah. so you, you said that, uh, she made, she basically made up the secret doctrine, but are, is everything in there made up of the Eastern beliefs that were already existent or did she well, come sorry. up with other stuff? Well, so, besides in my, I'm sorry, go ahead. Baby. Oh, I was going to, uh, uh, my, my point with the stanzas of John was that she invented this base test, a text that the, all traditions are, have sprung from. So there's one source where all traditions have some kind of hidden thread that ties back to that somehow. So um, when people talk about her plagiarizing or or stealing from different traditions, what she's essentially doing is world building based on this idea that there was like one sacred text originally that explained everything. Right. And and, um, it's a mythical text that it's a literary invention of hers, but the ends justified the means as far as she was concerned with that. But, but, Mm. but besides that, everything except for the root races I have encountered in, uh, you know, longstanding Hindu, you know, Adivedantic and Sufi tradition uh, and Zoroastrian tradition, the root race stuff I haven't come across, but all, a lot of the other stuff, you know, the ideas of the, uh, seven planes, uh, of existence, um, you know, uh, and the, the, the monad and it, a lot of this, I mean, most of the stuff is, is cribbed from different, uh, yeah. Eastern spiritual and mystical traditions. Yeah. And she does touch on like, uh, Kabbalah, yep. um, that kind of bridges the gap to the Western traditions, uh, a little bit, you know, um, but she's seems to be antagonistic towards Western theology. Yeah. And, mm. and in a lot of ways, like she's very critical of of uh the christian ideologies yeah um and and uh i mean to the point where she named her new newsletter lucifer i think yeah 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 yeah. and uh there's a story that lockman writes about the like at her baptism i guess the priest accidentally set himself on fire (laughs) oh that's right yeah interesting (laughs) yeah So, I mean, she was kind of antagonistic towards Western beliefs too, which is, which is kind of cool, but she's also saying that that stuff also, it it had a longer journey from the original source. So it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's like a a much more, um, mutated version of, of that sacred stuff, the secret doctrine, but it still has a tie to all the other traditions but i mean it goes to show that even if she did make it up you're talking about like i read the cosmogenesis part of the secret doctrine which was about 700 pages and she cites her sources the whole way around um like like she did her studies like she knew what she she was yeah like she just made it all up she was she had to have studied a lot to to um uh to to be able to accurately depict any of this mm. on any level. So Okay, that's interesting. Um so did she invent the root race idea or is that also found elsewhere but Christians didn't come across it? Um yeah, I mean it, it, what what she's talking about there with like the various Manvantaras, I, I, I thought yeah. that it came out of Vedantic tradition. Yeah, I mean it, it, to some degree, like the oh, way in which it, Tibetan stuff with the Dhamma. Yeah, no, I mean, you're right in that there are these, and there's, you know, quite a bit of uh, uh, criticism that is arguing for, you know, the 
misinterpretation of this from uh you know sanskrit and from uh the uh, the vedas and stuff like that but the idea of the caste system um and that in in terms of i guess there being these different like uh you know you have your brahmin and then which is sort of like the higher class uh but the thing about the caste system is that the caste system was, you know, it's a socio-political uh, construct that was based upon, um, you know, an interpretation of religious tech uh, texts in the same way that, you know, the uh, Catholic church does it. Uh, but it's, you know, the idea of those fixed social groups and the sort of social stratification. Um, yeah, it does exist. And it did became a big part of the caste system in India, but uh it wasn't it didn't exist so much in the way in 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 its uh i guess in its association with the yugas like the yuga cycle is um uh different in that there are like different it's more like the greek idea of the different ages you know you have the golden age um and then you have sort of a lesser golden age and right now we're in the kali yuga which is the sort of the iron age and it's the most sort of physical base worst age. And then, you know, we cycle back to the other ages, but the things that, so uh, the, people the, say we're living in the worst timeline. That's yeah. Also, right. <laughs> yeah. But the ideas of like the Varna Jati and caste, which are the things that, uh, that I think you're talking about. Those are these like frameworks for grouping people, people in uh vedic indian society and at least in my you know i'm sure that there are some people who are you know f- fundamentalist hindus that don't believe this but it, it it very much seems like a corruption of much more uh esoteric ideas of sort of different phases of uh evolution and this was taken you know and turned into a socio-political system as most things are for control um, yeah, the, the evolutionary and involutionary things are taking place on a, on a crazy big time scale. Exactly. Theosophical tradition. So, yeah, I mean, one man of Antara is like 340 billion years long. Mm. Yeah. Like yeah. we have like 427,000 years before the, this, this cycle is over or something. According to them. Yeah. There are others that say that we're, you know, we're coming out of it right now. We're, we're heading out of the, uh, Kali Yuga into, you know, the, the, uh, Dvarpa Yuga, I think. Is that what it is? I think I'm trying so. to remember off the top of my head. Yeah. And, and I, the age of Aquarius that ties into a lot. Right. 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 Well, right. That's, that's the yuga cycle that more closely matches the uh, the Greek um, golden age cycle. Correct. Which is yeah. also very uh, keyed into the uh, procession of the equinoxes. Right. 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 But according to the the theosophical invo- uh, evolutionary involutionary thing, is that you start off as something more ethereal. When you do come into matter, you start off as a mineral, work your way up to a plant, and yeah. Still- Incarnation cycles, and then you become an animal, and then a human being, and then from there you have a couple of steps that are more spiritual before you join the Oversoul. So that's the uh, the way that um, Meher Baba, as a you know twentieth century uh, mystic that's drawing from Sufi and Vedic tradition, the way that he parsed it was that yes, that's exactly it. So that you know, in sort of the timeless time before time, you know, there was the infinite intelligence, and that 
you know, when the infinite intelligence split and there is this idea of splitting into seven, that this number seven does have some sort of harmonic significance, not that it split into seven rays, but there, you know, for sort of looking at a model of conceptualization, that there was this sort of uh, split into seven and that from there, there's this like, you know, further separating from, you know, the, the uh, Paramatma, uh, the Oversoul. And that the what happens, you are starting essentially as energy, as uh, consciousness, let's say, uh, yep. and that this consciousness is separated. Some of these consciousnesses um, descend completely to the physical level and start as an atom and then will, you know, evolve. And it's essentially a chrysalis, you know, uh, process for the infinite intelligence that is all of creation to know itself. So humans, you know, uh, up to human from Adam, you know, uh, through like, you know, um, Adam state, uh, you know, bacteria, uh, uh, fish, you know, um, birds, animals, humans. And that from when you reach human, you actually go and there's this uh, involution that happens. And the human form is very loosely described. So it could be humanoid. It doesn't necessarily have to be human as we see it but then there's this involutionary process where essentially you involve and you start to experience through your other sense organs the different planes of existence the seven planes of existence that are also talked about in theosophy and that at some point you know you reach uh again this sort of understanding of the oversoul and your individual soul that is sort of accumulated all these things through reincarnation um, and that it's really just like a process of consciousness uh, evolving, then that's really what it is. It's part of like a Con natural almost. Yeah, consciousness experiencing all yeah. levels of materiality and right. reality. So you, right. can, you can envision it like a bell curve. Yeah. Like you start off with one end being immaterial and just pure energy and move towards a material hardened form. Yeah. And then re while, while, while maintaining that same kind of, kind of consciousness. Yeah. And then kind of moving back toward the immaterial again. Right. Exactly. Know? Yep. And that this is just a constant process that we are a part of that is, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the matter of the universe and all of creation. So yeah. And that, then that's, that stance in theosophy, uh, is not only one that, you know, does show up, uh, very specifically what we were talking about is a, you know, comes from, uh, uh, Adivedanta, uh, Adiveda Vedanta. And, um, yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, uh, when she talks about that, when Blavatsky's talking about that, uh, it's not something that is, you know, at least for me, when I came across it, it wasn't a new idea. It's something that I had come across before. Okay. Um, so, I mean, it's pretty obvious how people like Aleister Crowley influenced the, the modern occult movement. What, what influences did Blavatsky's work have on it? Well, Blavatsky influenced Crowley. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> he was a bad yeah. But, uh, I mean, she, she was the reason for sort of like the, uh, modern revival of Western esotericism. Um, I think, you know, if you read Lockman's book on her, he's basically saying that like all modern occult and esotericism can trace it back to her influence. So she was really crucial because if you think about it, like these ideas of that come from Sufism and Buddhism and Hinduism, they all these Eastern sort of traditions think about how influential they are 
and how all pervasive they are and kind of like new age occultism nowadays and the paranormal even and how we think about the paranormal. And if, you know, uh, it, it really like if you look at it, it's very, very you know interesting to see how many of these terms like you know, have become part of our popular culture. Like even the term avatar, the term avatar is a Hindu term that is very specifically having to do with this idea of a physical incarnation of the, you know, intelligent, you know, the supreme God in, 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 in the, the sense of, you know, Hinduism. But if you want to think about it in terms of like uh, something a little less, uh, uh, you know, old white man beard in the sky that, you know, these avatars are, essentially physical incarnations of spiritual or consciousness, uh, entities, you know? Um, so sorry, I lost my train of thought. That's okay. Uh, You're talking about how these terms pop up. Yeah. Yeah. How these terms pop up. And so, uh, you know, I think that without her bringing this in, we would be looking at a very different sort of landscape of, uh, esotericism and the occult. Mm, because she was always a controversial p- figure, but she was very, the, the theosophical ideas were very popular. Like their yeah. the societies were huge, yeah. uh, not too long after she started them, wow. which means that a lot of these Eastern ideas were being fed into Western, you know, uh, Western societies, like in the yep. Americas, even, yep. um, at a time when, when it was all brand new to a lot of them. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so, I mean, that's kind of, uh, <laughs> it's not to say nobody had gone to India or Tibet before and learned about some of this stuff, but, um, there were scholarly works on it. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, um, they themselves were often flawed interpretations of it. So, um, or, and so, so, I mean, a lot of these ideas that have made their way into occultism, you know, wouldn't probably wouldn't have, at least not in the same way if it hadn't been for, for theosophy. I mean, think about how much the sort of this idea of the ascended masters and the way in which it sort of, at least in the later days of theosophy played out. And I'm not talking about Blavatsky, but the later days of theosophy that to me seems to like you can see that going directly into the uh, contactee movement, you know? Yeah. Um, After she had died, like CW Ledbetter and Annie Vassant running the show, I mean, Ledbetter is responsible for a lot of like really bad new age stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. That he was, was a, a he was a terrible pedophile too, you know. Oh, great! <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, uh, like I did, like new agey ideas about chakras were yep. published by him, uh, uh, or bad renderings of 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 uh, Eastern thought. And he was the guy that, with Basant, they were the ones that found Krishnamurti and sort of, you know, per, you know, put him forth the earth. As if people aren't familiar with this, they essentially found this, you know, young boy in India. Ledbetter, of course, was the one who did it uh, in this very sort of creepy way when you read him describing, uh, you know, sort of seeing Krishnamurti. Uh, And yeah, (laughs) I've heard that since that Krishnamurti did, you know, they're from some of the, you know, people that I've talked to, whether or not they actually know anything, I don't know, but I I believe them um, that Krishnamurti does, you know, he was, did have some sort of mystical or spiritual uh, um, uh, gifts, but you know, he, he ended up deciding after he had been chosen and groomed to be this, you know, avatar that he was like, no, I'm not. He's like, I have some ideas for how to live a spiritual life. And he did teach spirituality, but he, he sort of tried to distance himself from theosophy, the older he, he, he became, but yeah, to be like the coming master. 
Yes, the coming master, right? Uh, which is this idea that you know keeps on coming up. The Maitreya, Maitreya, yeah. yeah. And uh, did Maitreya? Really where did Maitreya come from? That's a Buddhist idea. Okay, right. But that's a lot right. of this also has a lot of this also has to do with the idea, the Hindu idea, or overlaps with the Hindu idea of the avatar because the avatar is cyclical, keeps on coming. So you know uh, there are and. For me, at least, I think it makes the most sense if you were to sort of start believing in these types of cycles that, you know, you get people like Jesus or Buddha or Zoroaster, you know, or Muhammad or, uh, I don't know, St. Francis of Assisi or, you know, pick any others. Maybe even more recently, somebody like Gurdjieff or possibly Meher Baba or, you know, I don't know about Blavatsky, but you know, there's certain other people that are these, yeah, that, that are sort of these teachers or they get, you know, I mean, I would even say Jane Roberts, you know, maybe, or, uh, I don't know, maybe Casey or something. These, you're getting some tapping in some like genuine, like humans that do have some sort of, uh, you know, um, that are tapped into some, whether or not it is a formal spiritual hierarchy or control system uh, you know, of ascended masters, you know, maybe that's one way to look at it. Uh, you know, but you could also look at it as in, you know, there are some people that might, uh, evolutionarily or involutionarily, I don't know, I just invented two words <laughs> that they're, you know, that they're going to have some, you know, developing cities or, you know, having psychic powers or understanding or being tapped into the, you know, Akashic field, or I'm just throwing tons of, you know, terms out here but i think that i i at least am op very open to that possibility and so i think that you know you get these ideas of like the avatar or the ascended master or something like that i think there could be a very you know real basis for this that isn't something you know uh as uh like woo woo or um, I don't know, even like, uh, anthropomorphically problematic as, uh, what the ascended masters became in theosophy. Right. Which kind of gets to the concept of bodhisattvas. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Which is, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Well, I mean, the idea that, um, you know, you like having, having passed on instead of attaining nirvana, even though they could, they just kind of hang around and help out. Yep. Oh, I see. It's ethereal. Yeah. Things, yeah you know yeah um and sometimes it's referred to as like uh the secret chiefs yep kind of idea and occultism kind of comes from that yeah um secret chiefs of the third order i think yeah called in the oto um, yeah. they, they, and and but like ascended masters is more like that where they're just kind of a um a, like like an outside force that was once human and has kind of now become an ethereal like, like yeah uh, or even or i mean if i'm doing you know, complete speculation, which I like to do all the time. I think that you can think of it less like, you know, uh, with human motivations and more like the way that, you know, certain, I don't know, animals or plants or, uh, different, you know, things interact with an ecological system, you know, like how bees are able to, uh, support certain types of light, you know, uh, life oh, in our, that idea in our ecology, yeah. you know, uh, I almost wonder is that if you achieve this sort of bodhisattva, you know, uh, a state that, you know, maybe there's, you know, you stop, stop thinking the way that humans do. And there's a different way that you sort of approach 
uh, life. This is why it was interesting when Vuk was talking about his sort of Gaia theory stuff uh, you had on recently. And I had been sort of texting with him back and forth. Um, you know, he had been talking about, you know, this in terms of Gaia theory. And I think that's definitely a way to look at it, you know, yeah. uh, which it, it, that, that can be, you know, informative and interesting and possibly accurate in some way. So it's almost a Taoist perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So have we brought up the, the great white brotherhood yet? I don't think we've talked about this. <laughs> yeah. So who wants, who well, wants to explain that's, that? That's just meant to mean like the forces of good versus the forces of darkness. That's that what I, I figured. It's the simplest way of putting it. Yeah. It's like black lodge, white lodge, which, you know, yeah. which is where twin peaks kind of took it from. Right. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that's, a lot of theosophical stuff going on that's so you're you're getting like that from both lynch is bringing the vedantic stuff into it you know because he's heavily involved in um tm transcendental meditation which you know as an organization and the leader of it you know i personally think is kind of problematic but the stuff that they're talking about as you know very real roots in um uh things that at least i've experienced to be sort of pretty valid but uh yeah uh the 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 great and then god who is it uh mark frost he also is a huge sort of occult western esotericism historian so he in injected a lot of theosophical um uh kind of you know like plot points and easter eggs and stuff like that and themes into twin peaks but yeah the great white brotherhood versus the sort of it's this idea and this is one that i don't know i mean there are a lot of people that still sort of you know are kind of convinced this is going on there was a uh, the last um <laughs> strange realities i think it was olaf phillips did a, his uh presentation kind of on this idea of the black lodge and you know, he seems to think that there is proof for there being these, you know, there being opposing forces of sort of like, uh, I guess, uh, learned, adept, uh, dark, you know, mystics versus uh, uh, um, light mystics, I guess, in the sense of positive versus negative. But yeah. I don't know. I haven't, you know, I've never, none of the people that I've talked, none of the sort of, you know, mystics that I've talked to or the stuff that I've read from my little corner of the world uh has seen to be anything like that but who knows yeah I and mean, it kind of goes into the mythology of it too with the atlantis like the downfall of atlantis was supposed to yeah. be the dark sorcerers that had uh yeah so um does she talk about that she does yeah she okay. does talk about atlantis yeah yeah lemuria uh, and atlantis i knew she uh, talked about lemuria i didn't know if she talked about atlantis right the third race was supposed to be from lemuria and the fourth was from atlantis okay right? Okay. Yeah. Right. And again, you know, I mean, we all know now that Lemuria, that name at least itself was, you know, based upon a guy talking about lemurs. Yes. You know, yeah. it's like not, it's not the ancient plateau of Lang as, you know, some might think it to be. And, but, uh, uh and it appeared in Edward, uh, Bulwer Lytton's book prior to, uh, Blavatsky referencing it, I think. Oh, okay. right. Um, yeah. The Vril, the coming race, right. Vril, the coming race. And that's another, I mean, I guess that's another like point we could talk about because she does, you know, that is something that emerged from this is this idea of Vril. Um, but at least I've always thought of that as being, you know, that was a book that was written Vril, the coming race. And it was a very, uh, it was like fictional book about essentially like an underground race kind of in the uh, uh, 
Earth type stuff. Journey to the center of the Earth type way, you know? And, um, but out of that came this very real, I like people adopted it kind of, you know, as truth. But they were using it to refer because in this science fiction book, Real the Coming Race, they, you know, this advanced race from inside the Earth, they use something called Vril as like, you know, secret electricity. It's like, you right. know, their zero, zero point energy. But I, then it started to be adopted in this way that it was kind of standing in for the, you know, Eastern ideas of chi or ki or prana, which mm. is, mm. you know, something that has, you know, thousands of years of history to it, which is this idea of there being something that is connected to electricity that is like, you know, I don't want to say it's uh, the way that at least I've heard it described to me is that electricity that we deal with for power is the shadow of the shadow of the shadow of like the real electricity. And that that is something that, you know, you could find more in like plasma forms or in, you know, lightning. Um, and you know, uh, pretty cool. Stuff. It's cool stuff. Yeah. But it's, that's what real, I mean, at least to me in seeing historically now with 2020 vision, what real from that science fiction book became in terms of people believing in it, it almost was standing in for belief in something else, you know? Right. And is, is that a concept the Nazis also ran with? I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I think so. Again, I feel like there's speculation as to whether or not the Nazis really went as deep into occultism as people say they did, or whether or not that's still like morning of the magicians. Yeah. A lot of it, it comes from Powell's and Bergier writing about it. 60s and which may or may not have been you know i mean it was it was absolutely sensationalized yeah yeah i mean and we can as, see as from result, yeah. yeah as a result you get the sensationalized connections back to theosophy which there are connections there yeah, yeah. but <laughs> yeah uh, yeah uh, not as much as people would have you believe or assume just from from a cursory glance at it yeah yeah okay i think maybe okay. people are just fascinated with the fact that the nazis were looking at anything occult well, I think they might have. They were probably were. I mean, oh no, they certainly the, were. But yeah, in the same way that, like, you know, well, we see what we see what they were also doing is they were just being completely unscrupulous in terms of their scientific experience, in terms of their experiments. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, and that's Operation Paperclip right there. Like, you know, I think there's probably a lot of overlap in terms of this idea of them doing these horrible occult experiments with the very real, you know, just torture that they were doing in, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, as part of, uh, the, the yeah. paperclip type experiments that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that comes, that comes from, uh, that comes from science, you know I mean? Yeah. That comes from the scientific end of it. Yeah. Uh, it's like it, the people, people are quick to blame the occult end of, of things a lot of the time, because I guess it's scarier and more fun. Yeah. You know, it becomes yeah. like that movie, the movie with Nazis on the moon and Hitler riding a dinosaur. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Iron sky. Iron sky. Yeah. Yeah. It's the iron sky version of history, which people think is much more fun, especially sure. when you're into fringe stuff. But, but the, as yeah, the terrifying but, truth is that it was a bunch of scientists that wanted to prove that their bloodline was the right one yeah. or that you yeah. could perfect man just by thinning out the herd. Like eugenics wasn't an idea that came out of religious or esoteric thought. It was right. an idea that came out of logical scientific thought. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so how, how did uh, Blavatsky, I mean, we talked a little about the contactees, but what other influences did she have on the UFO uh, field? Well, a lot of um, the early contactees were, you know, directly 
theosophical uh adams uh, adamski in particular um and when when he wrote his first book with desmond leslie leslie was like very much a theosophist mm. uh there's a lot of overlap between contactism and theosophy in 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 uh england but um the fact that that's the case and where theosophy has its ties in with uh, as Chris had mentioned, the Ballards in, having influenced them and, um, uh, you know, uh, William Dudley Pelly to some extent and a, a lot of currents that tie into like conspiracy thinking, um, conspiracy theories over time have, uh, you know, theosophy is always something that pops up. It's always something that gets referenced here and there. Mm, right. Yeah. Okay. So it becomes part of that whole ball of wax that's. That, that that makes up the nebulous uh fringe thought and it's it's always just kind of right there you know gotcha. um i think if you're a nuts and bolts ufologist you probably aren't uh you wouldn't be aware of 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 where some of that comes from but uh um and you probably wouldn't wouldn't be encountering it as often but when you're talking about the broad scheme of things with ufology um theosophy definitely played a role yeah, and this whole idea of, you know, the also the overlap that you get of the Atlantis myth with UFOs. I mean, the Atlantis yep. myth as it exists now and, you know, maybe the the whole like ancient aliens aside from sort of the attack that like Van, Van Doniken takes, you know, a lot of that is, you know, that that revision of Atlantis, while I think, you know, arguably maybe Edgar Casey had some influence on it, it's still coming from, you know, Blavatsky to some degree. Huh. Okay. Uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right. Quick mid show break. Uh, I'm basically a recommendation and a, uh, just some contact info. Of course, where did the road go.com has everything you need to get a hold of me. In any way, shape, or form, including a little pop-up when you go to the page, that does not go to a bot. It goes to me. Uh, so if I don't answer you right away, it's because uh, I'm like asleep or busy or something like that. But I generally will answer people if you message me on there. Um, and of course, if you want to become a patron, it's only $3 a month. It helps out immensely. And you get extra content all month long. All right. Uh, for a recommendation, I'm going to go with a book called Healer. This is from F. Paul Wilson. It came out in 1977. <clears throat> now, if I'm not mistaken, it's part of a series, but I never read the rest of the series. I didn't know it was part of a series, so I just started reading it one day, and it's it's awesome. Um, I, I, and I can't really remember a lot of the details other than I was just really blown away with what a good book it was. I'll read the back. Uh, the Federation of Man is Being Driven Insane. A Plague of Psionic Terrorism Threatens Humanity. Impossible holes open in, mid open in midair, vomiting alien berserkers. An epidemic madness called the horrors leave millions mindless, gibbering, cringing. Once again, the healer emerges, a cosmi cosmically unique symbiote of man and alien being. Immortal, telepathic, scarred, and somehow human. He is the only galactic consciousness powerful enough to grapple with the alien evil called Kali. To mankind, he's a savior and a freak. <laughs> this book was really, really good. It's not that long. It's only about 200 pages, and uh, I assume it's easily available. Like I said, it came out in like 77. So uh, if you like interesting sci-fi, that one's definitely high on my list. So that's my recommendation for this week. And now back to the show. So you're listening to Where Did the Road Go? And I have with me A.P. Strange and Christopher Ernst. And we're talking about Theosophy, Madame Blavatsky, 
and all things interconnected. Um, so w- when did Blavatsky die and how did uh, she die? She died in the late 1800s. Okay. Yeah. 1892, I think. Yeah. Do you know what uh, she died of? Well, she had a host of health issues, uh, <laughs> from a lot of hard living. Mm, uh, okay. So it, it's funny because she died on May 8th, 1891. All right. So I was close, but, um, yeah, we, we just passed like the anniversary of her death date. Oh, okay. How old was she for me? Because I wanted to, uh, one of my ideas for doing this was to just put her name into a search on social media, just to see what pops up as comments when people do reference her. Mm -hmm. Cause that's where you end up finding a lot of good misconceptions to unpack. (laughs) Right. But there were, because it was Lotus day, which is the celebration of her life uh, on the anniversary of her death. So, uh, so kind of synchronicity there kind of blew up my idea. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, she had a lot of health issues. She She wasn't, she was 60, I think. She wasn't that old. Yeah. But I mean, she, she, she lived hard. She lived also in the 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. She was never not smoking. Um, like she, she was huge on tobacco. So, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and she was overweight, but she had like mobility issues. And I think she was kind of like an organ. She was in a, a a wheelchair towards the end of her life. I I know. Right. And she had massive organ failure while she was writing the secret doctrine actually. Oh, um, and you know, one of the stories was that, um, one of the masters coot whom he visited her and, uh, like healed her basically so that she could finish writing the book. <laughs> hmm. uh, and I mean, like, I don't know how true it is, but it's kind of a nice story. Cause it's like, she's bedridden and the doctor comes and says, she probably won't make it through the night. And then she claims that Kutumi shows up and the woman that was kind of caring for her at the time comes in the next morning, expecting to find her dead. And she's up in her wheelchair. Like, where's my cigarettes? Where's my coffee? Come on. We got some writing to do. Yeah. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, I mean, she had, she had a number of things going on. I think there was like, uh, various organs were just kind of, uh, barely functional at the end. So it sucks. Um, so who took over what, what happened with theosophy after she passed away? There was kind of a split as far as I know. Um, uh, well, this might've happened a little bit later, uh, the split between, um, (sighs) Bailey and Besant. Uh, cause essentially there was, uh, Annie Besant who I don't know when she might've been in the late 1800s that she had met, um, uh, and sort of became involved with Blavatsky, but it was towards the end there. And she had a particular way that she went with it. That was, uh, I think along with Leadbeater. but then Alice Bailey was, uh, another woman who had, you know, been involved towards the end. And she had set up like uh, she had, I think, set up the helped set up the Lucius Trust, um, which was like an extension of the Lucifer publishing imprint that uh, 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 Blavatsky had started. But I think there was that was the first split. Do you, do you know? Do you know AP? Well, I mean, the thing about having anybody really in charge is that the society was founded in New York. Yeah, and then they pretty quickly established uh, headquarters in London and India with the Adyar. 
Right, and that's where Basant was mainly, and Ledbetter were in India, yeah. Well, I mean, during, while Blavatsky was still alive, so she couldn't right. possibly be in three places at once. So there right. was already kind of a jockeying for who was going to control yes, Theosophy during that time. And it was kind of in shambles when she was on her way out of yeah. this life. Yeah, because the people that were she left in charge in Adjar were um, plotting against her. Right, right, they were. That's when yeah. they had somebody from the Psychical Research Society in England come and investigate the claims of uh, various like miraculous feats that Plavatsky had performed there. Yeah, and he was the one that released a huge report calling her a fraud for yep. um, a lot of that. Uh, Lockman goes into a lot of detail in his biography about how much of that was um, based on hearsay and uh, a lot of a lot of jiggery pokery on the part of the people that were left in charge of that that mm. building while Blavatsky wasn't there for like a year. Um, but yeah, and then in England you had AP Senate was running the right London part of it, and he really kind of wanted to be in charge of a lot of that as well. So what was the other name of the other guy? Was it judge? Yeah. William Kwan judge yeah, was, yeah, yeah. was in charge <laughs> and nobody talks about judge. Like they pretty much handed him the society in America and were like, see, right. Yeah. And like, he was like yeah. the least flamboyant theosophist. So, um, I'd like to read some of his writings cause I hear that they're, I have not read any of his writings. No. Yeah. It would be worth looking at, I guess, because he, he was less flamboyant, but maybe he had some cool things to say, but, but yeah, I mean, as far as once she, died you know um the 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 schism that that came to pass is what you're talking about um right like Ledbetter wasn't popular among a lot of them no um and the word got out about about his uh predilections with young boys and uh and he was kept around (laughs) yeah they like he like resigned but didn't like leave he was like i'm gonna resign but i'm still gonna hang around really yeah well what year was this like roughly this was like uh god early 1900s yeah like i want to say that besant sort of took over from olcott yeah it was like night round night or 1910 something like yeah. that was yeah. was was there more tolerance for that type of thing back then i would say there was less probably i really? mean maybe it wasn't talked about openly enough so okay. yeah i okay. think it was i think it was hidden is what was happening i mean there was definitely like the thing that i know that happened with Leadbeater was that he was con like he the thing that came out is that he'd been instructing boys to 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 masturbate which you know i mean obviously that's sexual abuse there uh but He's like that was the or two as part of a spiritual practice. Yeah, yeah. And that that was um that was the specific thing that sort of like so the, the- Theosophical Society did like they raised formal chart like they had a formal thing against him. Uh Besant mm-hmm. defended him, and that's when he sort of resigned, but yeah, it, it never really went away. I mean, I think it's the same thing that you see in a lot of these organizations where there's, you know, a lot of corruption and uh abuse of power. I mean, yeah, you know, there it really that it happens, you know, that I I've found very few places uh and examples where that hasn't happened. Um and yeah, yeah. I guess I was yeah. asking because, you know, you had kids working in very dangerous jobs, you had yeah. people getting married at 12 years old and yeah. stuff like that in that time period. So 
I, I feel like that that something like pedophilia might have been looked at differently. Of course, sex wasn't looked at as a, a positive thing at all. So, I mean, I think pedophilia was looked at as you know um, uh, bad, but you still you know there were child prostitutes, and it was one of those things that I think it was like you know a dirty part of uh, society that you know on the public face was looked upon poorly, but you know bad things happened behind closed doors. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the the part of the, part of what's weird about it too, or like incorporating it as part of their spiritual training, is that uh, with Blavatsky, like uh, the the idea was to be entirely chased. Yeah, and Blavatsky yeah. was huge yeah. distinction between um, Theosophy and a lot of magical practices is that uh, Blavatsky was like anti-sex to like the extreme. You know, <laughs> like, yep. And she never married or anything. Never had any yeah, children. She was married two or three times, but oh, she okay. claimed that, that she never had sex. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So she she claimed that she was never actually married because no marriage was ever consummated. <laughs> All right. Um, so like, where is, where is the Theosophy Society now? You can still go to it. I mean, in New York, at least, I believe they still have, um, uh, uh, an actual physical, uh, headquarters you can go to in a library. Hmm. Yeah. They have lodges and chapters all over the place. I mean, every major city has something, you know, I think, um, I know there's one in Boston and there's one in Springfield in Massachusetts, so I could go to either. <laughs> and I know that there are still a bunch in India. Uh, I didn't go to any when I was there, uh, but I, I was, you know, from, I saw some, uh, you know, outside of some. Yeah. Cause I mean, it didn't go away really. No. Yeah. And it's still yeah. around. I mean, out of curiosity, when I was reading the secret doctrine, I had like the little postcard thing fall out of it. That it was self-addressed to the theosophical college or Theos theosophy university or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> the publishing house of, of all the theosophical texts. Mm. And I was like, just for shits and giggles, maybe I'll put this in the mailbox and see if I get like a catalog back you know because that's what it's for they'll send you a catalog and they did i did ah. get a theosophy theosophy publishing house um but it was by hand manipulated where they were like crossing things out like no longer available or <laughs> there were like correspondence courses that they were just like this isn't a thing anymore like <laughs> handwritten in pen and I'm like, oh man, rough times for the theosophical system. Yeah, you would think they could just print out a new uh, a new thing without all that stuff on it. So stacks and stacks of the old catalogs, so just by hand or putting stickers over things, so that <laughs> you know. So who runs it now? Is it run by different people in different places? Yeah, I think that individual chapters probably just have their own groups doing it. You know. Okay. So. Yeah. They, uh, the, I mean, there were some prominent people like for a while, like Thomas Edison, I know is a theosophist. Um, yep. yeah. Yeah. Frank um, was, I mean, and that, that, that's why I like when you get into conspiracy stuff, sometimes I'll just hear somebody talking about, you know, a certain period of time and they're like, oh, and then so-and-so was a theosophist. So, oh, you know. And to me, like at certain points in history, calling somebody a theosophist is about the same as saying they had a library card. Because <laughs> it's not like this really is like a religion or a cult or a uh, high magical order. It was uh, basically like a uh, philosophical and esoteric book club where they could get together and talk about these things. Yeah. Like you could join the theosophical society and not. Um, it's not the same thing as like a secret society or uh a ritual magic setting, right? Yeah. It's it's more loose knit than that in a lot of ways. So, um, I totally forgot. Oh, so, so what, what, what do you see when you look around as far as the biggest misconceptions about theosophy? Um, 
Well, uh, I think misconceptions happen as a result of uh, conflating a lot of complicated things into a very small, uh, short-sighted view of it, which I think is true of just about anything. Yeah, sure, uh, sure. But theosophy is so complicated. Um, I, I, I think that the Ascended Masters idea has a long history that we spend a lot of time talking about, um, uh, where, where people talk about the Mahatmas or the Masters themselves and don't really kind of get the stuff we talked about at the beginning of the show. <laughs> I, I think gets mis- mis- misrepresented a lot. But I also think that there's a way of looking at Blavatsky and what she was doing that um, uh, some of the fraud or perceived fraud or the uh, plagiarism, quote unquote, or the uh, cherry picking of ideas from, or misrepresenting different traditions. Um, that seems to be how it's it's always interpreted, but there was a, a goal to it. You know, um, like people will say that because she incorporated things that came from a science fiction story, uh, she, she was somehow duped into thinking that was a real thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but to her, it didn't really matter. I mean, I think she would go as far as to invent a text that doesn't exist as an explanation for why all these esoteric ideas appear across the world in different traditions because they all stem from the same source which was a text she made up and it didn't matter that she was borrowing from fiction or or uh fitting different esoteric ideas into uh her own cosmogony of how it all worked um because ultimately uh, <laughs> uh ultimately what what she drives at constantly is the idea of the noumenon versus the phenomenon and this gets to the concept in eastern religions of maya yeah the illusory version of reality that we're all familiar with anything that you can see or perceive perceive at all on our very human level is um an illusion built up around us um and this uh, people conceive of this nowadays as the matrix i mean in ancient greece it was the shadows on the wall in the cave Right, but uh, right, but, but it also but, could be looked at as like Talbot holographic universe. Yes, exactly. Yep, and this is what Blavatsky is saying: is none of this is real anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, everything you can experience by definition is not real, but it, but for all intents and purposes, it, it is. It's what we're stuck with. So you have yeah. to kind of navigate it, and and what it means is more important. The noumena behind it is more important than what it what it physically is. Right. I think the thing that gets misunderstood about the idea of Maya is that it's somehow like, you know, saying that, you know, this physical space that we're in and, you know, because it's illusion that somehow there's no worth to it or that it's something like the idea of escaping, you know, Maya. It has more to do with the idea that there is sort of greater realities that uh, contain greater truth. But also, you know, I guess this idea that that like nagging itch in the back of every person's mind of like, you know, not quite satisfied has to do with the fact that you're not getting the whole picture and that it's not that there's something wrong with it. It's just like in the same way that, you know, when you're a kid, you don't quite grasp something, you know, fully or you're not able to fully, you know, appreciate uh, something around you as your senses are growing um, and that that's, you know, that could be another way to look at it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be this thing of like, oh, it's all illusion. This is all, you know, uh, garbage. Like, you know, you do what you want or, you know, or it doesn't matter or something, anything like that. And that it's, you know, you have to think of it more as like a process that you're sort of like 
trying to push, you know, uh, push through and you're trying to uh, essentially like move through. It is a uh, it is a process of becoming rather than uh, a place that you are stuck. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the simplest way I could think of it to explain it is nothing is real except all of it is. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's the other thing is that we're not separate. Like we are in it right now, like the other world, you know, uh, uh, God mystical, you know, uh, everything like we are literally, we are it and we are in the middle of it. So it's not like something that, you know, is far, far away. Uh, that's a, it's a big thing too, that I think is a misconception. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So the, um, that, that sound was a perfect exclamation point for what you said. I think that was me hitting my, uh, uh, my springs. <laughs> Did you drop your mic? Is that what happened? No, that I was a I mic hit, drop. Hit, my mic drop. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so one of the, you had, you had sent us some notes here, um, AP. And, yeah. uh, one of the things about her personalities, you said she was definitely a trickster using blinds to illuminate truth and humor, uh, and not above using sleight of hand magic tricks. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, I, I think that gets to the heart of what I was saying too, where like she kind of came to terms at the end of her life with being considered a fraud on some level. Mm -hmm. And she was only sad that like the masters got drugged through the mud and, uh, on the, <laughs> on account of her trickery and stuff. Yeah. But she, she didn't mind being considered a fraud so much as she seemed to mind the masters, the, the idea of the masters being considered false. Right. Um, but you know what? Like she was a very much a tricksterish figure. And if you read like the occult world by, AP Sinet. That's the book where he's talking about the Mahatma letters, how he got them. Um, Sinet was like a journalist and a person in, in India, a British guy in India that uh, worked with her and a huge proponent of theosophy and eventually kind of like took over the London Lodge. But in his book, he's talking about Blavatsky's stay in India and how he cultivated a relationship with the masters through her. Um, and a lot of what he's describing Blavatsky doing the way he writes it, you're like, are you kidding me? That's, that's a conjuring trick. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I know how that trick is done, like making a cigarette disappear and then finding it on top of like the curtain rod yeah. in the other room, you know, it's like, oh, did she find a coin behind your ear too? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's one of the things that people don't like about her sometimes is that she does have that sort of like. There's all, you know, there's that like sideshow kind of like, I don't want to say huckster, but she has that spiritualist, you know, uh, trickery, you know, aspect to her that is, you know, I think obviously part of the trickster that you find in, you know, a lot of these, uh, figures. And in fact, you find it in a lot of these figures that, you know, are, could be known as the ascended masters. Um, or, you know, the Mahatmas or the adepts or whatever, there are, you know, plenty of, um, uh, stories and, and, uh, narratives and adages and things like that from Sufism and, uh, Hinduism that talk about these masters and things like that and their interactions with people being very much like the trickster. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, that was something that she embodied, uh, very well, but people don't understand it. It seems, you know, I think one of the biggest things that people are misunderstanding about her is they're writing off. Well, yes, there are some incredibly racist things that developed out of theosophy and things that she said herself. And, you know, there's no way that can be excused for that. But I think you also have to understand that it's not just a bunch of racist hogwash. There's some things that she's 
sort of drawing from and synthesizing that actually have a very real basis. And the way that she's looking at it uh, is perhaps uh, a way that is, you know, beneficial uh, to examine these ideas. Right. I mean, there because she came to resent people's interest in phenomena like the production of miracles yeah Mm. Uh, because i mean that it was its own means to an end and i mean like a lot of her whole personality i mean presenting as kind of like the exotic fortune teller look she had um it was kind of a a version of victorian era branding you know yeah yeah completely and she kind of and self-mythologizing and i mean she didn't need to make up a lot of her story i mean she lived a lot of that But, I mean, she's a grandiose and remarkable figure and a controversial one, which I I don't think you can not be under those circumstances. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing um, that what she was able to accomplish for a woman of her time and uh, how she managed to do it. I think it was necessary to be a bit of a trickster. Um, The garnering attention was a big part of that. Yep. But um, sometimes you have to do something uh, extraordinary to get people to listen. And that's she would sometimes refer to as like a blind or uh, writing. There there would be something a bit misleading, but it was a blind to make you realize there's a hidden truth behind that. Yeah. What, what do you think her main motivation in all this was? Uh, I think she had several. I mean, I think she had an anti-colonialist bent to her for sure. Hmm. I, I think a lot of her um interest in india and tibet and being in that area was that she did want those areas preserved the way they were she preferred them not to be under the thumb of of western control Mm. and i i I think that was part of it (laughs) i don't know how successful she was or if that was her motivation there but i get i get the sense that that was part of it um on the esoteric end of things uh i mean she may well have just been earnest in her ideas of trying to uh you know trying trying to bridge the gap between various esoteric traditions and actually form like a universal brotherhood i think yeah i think that she (laughs) i i i can imagine that she did come across some ideas in her travels you know that come from these real sources of sufism and you know uh, Hinduism that we discussed earlier. And I think that she might've been really, uh, motivated and, you know, perhaps like spiritually stirred by them and that there was, you know, a germ of, I guess, uh, like spiritual inspiration in her writing this stuff, even as fiction, you know, I mean, when I get inspired by something as an, uh, filmmaker, as an artist, like I express things by kind of taking this and synthesizing it into something else. And, you know, it's possible that that's what she was doing. Um, I think she also was kind of a scenester in a way, uh, you know, as part of the scene. So I think that she did, you know, put together, like AP said, this brand. And it was, you know, how she learned how to kind of like live her life and uh, how she sort of functioned. And it was something that she, a role that I think she probably ended up not convincing herself. Well, yeah, convincing, like she, it was a role that she ended up inhabiting that she sort of created out of necessity, but also, you know, in the way that everybody, I mean, think of the many people in the paranormal world now that have sort of a, uh, I don't know, a persona like AP strange or super (laughs) Inframan, you know? Um, and I can imagine similar, you know, things going on with her there. Hey man, I am a master of mystical flap doodle. So yeah, yeah, my persona. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> totally. But uh, flap doodle. That, that's actually a word I cribbed from Blavatsky because I thought it was funny. That's okay. a word that she was using for for people that have you know just plain crazy ideas. That's terrific. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, from somebody like Blavatsky calling other people crazy. Right. One of my friends referred to her as being mad as a bag of cats. <laughs> And I was like, mad as a bag of cats. That's a great term. And, you know, like, I'm kind of okay with it. Like, I kind of appreciate a lot of things about her <laughs> that a lot of other people see as, like, a fault. Because right, I like right. grandiose personalities. Like, there's uh, there's something about that that appeals to me. I mean, I don't know. If people are going to spend a lot of time thinking about somebody like Crowley, you can spend some time thinking about Blavatsky. It's exactly. kind of how I feel. I feel like Blavatsky has become kind of a punching bag for people or, like, She's just kind of easy, like an easy target, low-hanging fruit, where it's just like, oh, yeah, Blavatsky. Or like, oh, that idea comes from theosophy. And there's right, always kind right. of like this arrogant brush-off of the whole of it. While at the same time, you mentioned Crowley, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, the dark wizard Crowley. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and I'm not into hero worship of any of these people. Like, I think Me you either. have to have some, like, really, like, I mean, I know that some people, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, some people obviously did consider these people to be like, I don't know, masters or their teachers in some way. And I, 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 I yeah, sure. But it's, you know, like you can look at this person and sort of examine their place, especially in the the history of uh, esotericism. That's one of the things that I think is most important is to understand the historical context of Blavatsky, her influence on, you know, current, the current state of sort of esotericism in popular culture and in sort of the, you know, cultural zeitgeist of, uh, you know, at least our culture, Western culture, English speaking culture. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah. uh, really important. that's my only hope from this is just that people will do their own investigating and, and dig around because yeah. there's so many fascinating stories there that I think people don't even bother investigating at all. Like Lockman's book is a great place to look for this stuff. That was, I was yeah. just going to ask you what you would recommend for people to start with. Like I said, that's where I would probably have them start, but I haven't read that, uh, the key to the, the theosophy book you were talking about. That might be a good direct source. Yeah. That's kind of one where you can skip around a bit. Mm -hmm. Cause like I said, it's like a frequently asked questions sort of that's deal. Good. It's written as a question and answer book that the, yeah. so like the crib notes version of theosophy. So it's, uh, that's a good place to start as far as Blavatsky's actual writings go. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> You're talking about the sort of ego and branding too. It's kind of funny because one of my favorite accounts was from GRS Mead of somebody trying to like prostrate themselves in front of Blavatsky and bow to her like she was some kind of uh, uh, like, like high guru. Yeah. <laughs> she like shrieked in disgust and like walked away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. the hell are you doing? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> it's funny stuff. Cause then I, I mean, like, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want to bag on Crowley. I'm glad Chris brought it up and not me, but like, I've never really been a big fan of, uh, I've never been that into him. And I have, there's certainly things you can criticize him where that I know of, but I've also not investigated him very thoroughly. And I think at this point I've done a fair amount of reading about Blavatsky and dug into it enough Yeah, where I feel like I, I don't know, like I've at least given her a chance and looked into it a bit, you know? Right. Right. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I, I, I've, I've say some things, but I've definitely uh, been influenced by Crowley quite a bit. Um, but I also don't take him completely seriously. Yeah, and I think it's. I mean, I don't think people shouldn't not look at Crowley. I just think that there are more, you know, 
it's like there's more stuff out. Like I think you should be looking at uh you know, yeah, Blavatsky. I think people should be looking again at Gurdjieff. I think people should mm-hmm. be looking at, you know, uh, uh, Austin Osman Spare. I think people yes. should be looking at Meher Baba. Uh, I think people should be looking at, you know, um, some of the writers in the late 1800s, like uh, Arthur Mackin and, and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It's all interconnected. Yeah, the whole world out there. Of yeah. Occult adjacent people. Yeah. Or, or, or occult people that are just, you know, it's fascinating to read yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. I started reading the Seth material again recently. Nice. I was going to tell you that, uh, uh, but I was going to finish reading it first, Soraya. Interesting. Real. I've, there's. We should talk about it at some point. I'm. 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 I'm quite. Uh, it's been a while since I read it. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I. Uh, I got a book um, from one of the people who used to go to Jane's classes. Yeah. It's a short book, Road to Elmira, I think it's called. Yeah. So I plan on reading through that, but I also downloaded a paper called The Problem with Seth that's apparently a critical look at it. So I want to read through that too and see what that person has to say. Totally. So, because I mean, I'm not against looking at all sides of this. I mean, after I read Seth the first time, I was like, okay, let me find the the rebuttal to this stuff. And I couldn't. That's what threw me. It's like, why is nobody like the the only thing I would see is uh, some some, um, really uh, fundamental Christians saying, well, Seth was a demon. Yeah, but that's what they say. It's like everything is a demon. Right. So I'm like, Seth is a demon. Harry Potter's a demon. I'm like, where's the criticism of the, like, where's, oh, Seth said this, but then Seth said this, and it was a complete contradiction. And then he said this, which was a complete contradiction. There's none of that. So I want to see what this paper has because I'm interested to see what, what this person found problematic about the Seth material. For sure. So we are out of time. Uh, AP, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at apstrange.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, and that's that's about it for now. <laughs> okay. And Chris? Uh, you can go to brightrectangle.com or uh, Amazon or Troma now to find uh, films that I do. Nice. All right. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I want to give a shout out here to all of my Patreons, because without you, this show would not be possible. And I want to give a special shout out to those who are pledging $10 or more. Illuminati, Greg Ross, Leanne Cherry, Matt in Delaware, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, Indrid Cold, 36 Dingo, Matthew Sproul, Andrew Nichols, Christine, a blue second gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gayaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Ann Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy and Communicable, Chris, Craig Cicernos, Craig Parmenter, Diane B, MTK, Eric Todd, History and Coffee, Jay, Jay Otto Bullet. Jack Huntington, James Lindsay, Jim and Sophie, John Mattingly, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L, Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McLean, Linda, Linz Jackson K, Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Mark Brady, Mr. Weird, Oli Andre Olar, Patricia W, Paul Jeffries, Philosopher of Mirrors, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, Seed Person One, Stacy Sherwood, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler G. Glimstead, Varush K., Vincent Trewell, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Annabelle Smith, Caroline Walker, TDT Skunkworks, and Craig Sagastumi. Thank you all so very, very much. There is a Patreon segment from this show, and, uh, Next week's show actually will continue, not on theosophy, but on um, some interconnected stuff.
That is going to be a really interesting, interesting show. Um, but I want to get this Theosophy one out there first because I wanted it to kind of fill out a little bit of uh, where things are going to connect next week. So there you go. Uh, there's, like I said, there's a Patreon segment. If you want to become a Patreon, please, $3 a month is all it is, and it helps us out immensely. I want to welcome a new Patreon this week, Mark Bowley. Thank you for joining up, Mark. I hope you like the content. And uh, now I'm going to take you out with a very peaceful song. This is A Hidden City off an album called Songs of the Drow, E-R-O-W. Friend of mine, Jaan, is the one who created this. It is available on Spotify if you like it. So uh, here you go. Some nice, relaxing, peaceful music to end out this edition of Where Did the Road Go? I'll see you next time.
have been listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support. <laughs>